Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to a short and brief NAPLUS update. And all we're going to do here is talk about some of the crazy things that have been happening in the world since the last podcast. I'm not expecting this to be as professional as some of the other podcasts, if you want to call them professional. This is just something uh, quick and dirty, I guess. But let's get right down to it. There are two major things I want to talk about. And they are the current state of the presidential race in the United States and the aftermath of the Irish election. But before we get there, I just finished watching the fourth season of House of Cards. And I'm sure, knowing that I'm such a political junkie, it doesn't come as a surprise to you that I enjoy House of Cards. And if you don't know what House of Cards is, it's a political drama based off a British show by the same name, that involves a Southern Democrat by the name of Frank Underwood, played by the glorious Kevin Spacey. And Frank Underwood is an absolutely brutal politician who will stop at nothing to get power. That's all he cares about, is achieving power, and how he gets there, it doesn't matter. It's a great show. Everybody does a great job especially Kevin Spacey, uh, one of my favorite actors, and he really brings to life the character of Frank Underwood. And while Frank's not a guy you want to root for, it's certainly interesting watching him connive his way to power. But I bring up House of Cards here for one reason, and that is I was a little bit disappointed with the newest season. While it's still entertaining television, Part of the reason I like House of Cards is to see how they try and mimic reality and, and what the writers try and say about issues within our own current world. And the previous three seasons have at least tried to do that. They obviously didn't succeed because there's different characters, it's a different world, it's got to tell its own story. But there are obvious stand-ins for real-life figures, like Russian President Viktor Petrov is an obvious copy of Vladimir Putin. And it's interesting to see how these people think Vladimir Putin would react to the various characters in the show and surrounding crises in the world. However, in this season, what happens in the show is completely different. In fact, the exact opposite of what's going on in our modern society. I feel like when writing the fourth season, the writers were trying to predict what would happen in the world, and got it completely wrong. The main thing I was disappointed in is the sort of competitor to Frank they chose, and how that doesn't mirror at all what's happening in the current Republican primary. I was really interested to see the show's take on figures like Donald Trump or Bernie Sanders. Unfortunately, I didn't get that. And it leads me to the main point I want to make here, which is that watching the political reality in the United States unfolding before me is far more entertaining than watching a fictionalized version of it. It's become very clear that reality has become stranger than fiction in the American political world, and take from that what you will. We are living in the era where reality has officially become stranger than fiction. I've been watching The Twilight Zone for the first time in my life recently, and that show is so incredible and so ahead of its time that I can't believe it's taken me so long to really appreciate it. 
But I feel like this whole Trump run is a story from the Twilight Zone, that we have entered the Twilight Zone, and I keep expecting to collectively fade to black and hear Rod Serling deliver a monologue that might go something like this. You have just observed a cautionary tale of what happens when the masses let their base emotions get the better of them. When they allow fear and hatred to manifest themselves into reality through the vessel of politics. This manifestation of choice brings with it a destruction of human decency and unfortunately isn't exclusive to the Twilight Zone. Yet it hasn't happened and over the past couple weeks we've seen the insanity that is the Trump campaign really come to a being all of its own. So let me start with Super Tuesday. Super Tuesday, last Tuesday, is a contest in the presidential primary race in which 11 states will simultaneously vote for their candidate on both the Republican side and the Democratic side. On the Republican side, Donald Trump cleaned up, winning the overwhelming majority of the states available, losing only Oklahoma, Texas, and Alaska to Ted Cruz and Missouri to Marco Rubio. And after Super Tuesday, Mitt Romney comes out and he unleashes everything he can at Donald Trump, delivering probably the most direct attack that I've seen anybody from the Republican establishment muster up yet. It had some great lines, but unfortunately, Donald Trump hit back and I think even though his blows were very below the belt, they certainly landed more than Mitt Romney's did. After that was the Republican debate, which was just an absolute clown show. These, <laughs> these debates just somehow get more clownish as time goes on. And this time had this great moment that everybody's talking about where Donald Trump references this moment in the campaign trail when Marco Rubio brought up the smallness of his hands and then inferred that that smallness might lead to other problems. So in the debate, Donald Trump brings up this attack and he's like, he pulls up his hands and he's like, look at my hands, look at them. Do they look like small hands? No, they're not small. And I assure you, there's no problems anywhere else. And I don't think that's the exact word for word of what he said, but it's pretty close. And then during the debate, which was on Fox News, the moderators and the candidates just kept hitting Trump over and over and over again. And I think some of those blows may have started to land because last week, Donald Trump suffered a little bit of an upset, especially in the state of Maine, where his opponent Ted Cruz won a northern state that most people assumed Donald Trump would win. Which brings us up to the present day where we're having a couple primaries and at the time of recording this, I'm not sure what the results are. I'll have more to talk about on Friday. But what we're seeing here is after Super Tuesday, the Republican establishment had a collective soil their pants moment where they realized Donald Trump might actually be our nominee. And they're past the point of playing nice. They're going to pull out everything they got and try and stop him here. 
And trust me, it's gonna get ugly. We are going to learn in the next coming weeks whether or not Donald Trump is truly a politically invulnerable candidate. Or will this collective attack might be enough to bring Donald Trump down? To me, I think it's a case of too little, too late. But we'll have to see what the coming weeks hold. But let me say this. I've been thinking about this a lot, and I've decided that I want Donald Trump to win the GOP nomination. This is because it will effectively mean the end of the Republican Party. We can already see the Republican Party splitting into two. This populist Tea Party movement, and of course the more establishment, quote-unquote, Republicans. And this has been going on for a long time, but now they're finally battling it out in sort of the electoral battlefields to see which one truly has the support of the Republican masses. And if Donald Trump wins that nomination, there's a lot of establishment Republicans who are saying they're going to disown him. They're either going to run ads against him or maybe even leave the Republican Party altogether. Whether or not they will follow through on said message, who knows, but if they do, effectively it means the end of the two-party system in America, and to me, that's a good thing long term. More choices is always a good thing. And from the Americans I've been speaking to, they're almost unanimously clamoring for something more, for a credible third party, because switching between the Republicans and Democrats doesn't seem to be doing anybody any good. So if it takes Donald Trump to create that third party, well, maybe something good will have come from his nomination after all. And there's a really interesting possible scenario which could play out here and that's a brokered convention and this scenario has a whole slew of ramifications and potential aftershocks so what exactly is a brokered convention well as the primaries are moving forward every state that votes awards a candidate delegates and these are essentially like their votes in the convention where they decide who their nominee is actually going to be in this brokered convention scenario, Donald Trump has the majority of delegates, but not enough to make it to 50%, an overall majority. In this scenario, the remaining Republican candidates who have combined 50% of the delegates come together and block Donald Trump's nomination, theoretically setting up their own ticket, and most people predict it will be a Marco Rubio, Ted Cruz ticket. Because, the argument would go, if Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz have more delegates combined than Donald Trump, then they have a strong argument as to why they can run a campaign together. And if that happened, it would be extremely unusual. As far as I know, this has never happened before, a brokered convention, that is. And what effect that would have on the Republican Party and the Republican base is unknown. What I expect is that you're going to piss off a lot of the base by saying, you know what, we know you voted for a candidate, but we're going to put our candidate in here anyway. Sorry, sad day for you voters. And that, of course, will have the effect of making the Republican Party look extremely undemocratic. 
Then there's the whole question of Donald Trump himself. What's Donald Trump going to do? My guess is that he is going to run an independent campaign because even though they made him sign this pledge that if he doesn't win the nomination, then he won't run as an independent, but Donald Trump can make the argument, I won the nomination. I won the most delegates. The nomination should be mine. Therefore, if I go and run as an independent, I won't be violating this contract because I technically won anyway. And if that happens, I expect it would be very difficult for the Republicans to win the White House or Donald Trump. So there's a lot of crazy things going on right now, and we're not going to know what happens for another couple months. And I'm just glued to this process. I can't look away. I have to watch this train wreck unfold in motion. And if Donald Trump doesn't win the nomination, well, this whole conversation is a moot point. But I really hope he does, and I really hope the Republicans try and block his nomination because, like I said before, that has the potential to open up the American system to multiple parties. Now, let's spend some time talking about the other side of the equation, the Democratic primaries. So again, let's start on Super Tuesday. Hillary Clinton won 7 out of the 11 states. Bernie Sanders ended up with 4. And depending on who you ask, Bernie Sanders either did terribly or okay. He certainly didn't do great. The overwhelming majority of the states which Hillary won, though, are all southern states. Very heavily favored to go in her direction. That much isn't surprising. The only southern state which defied Hillary Clinton was Oklahoma going to Bernie Sanders. Sanders also won Colorado, Missouri, and his home state of Vermont. The states he won were states that nobody really knew what was going to happen, so nobody knew exactly who was going to win or who was going to lose, and most people thought Bernie Sanders would lose those states. The main state, though, that was really disappointing for the Sanders camp was Massachusetts, a state close to Vermont and one that would be open to Sanders' particular brand of politics. Unfortunately, he lost by a slim margin. I think it was 1.5%. But that was, I think, the hardest blow for Sanders on Super Tuesday. If he had managed to squeak out a win in Massachusetts, well, then he would have a very fine collection of states that were supporting him on Super Tuesday. Still, he's got a pretty good collection, but not as good as Hillary Clinton. Then, last weekend, Bernie Sanders won three of the four states voting. He won Kansas, Nebraska, and Maine. Hillary Clinton only winning in Louisiana. Yet, you'd be hard-pressed to find coverage of this because every news outlet I read tried to either hide his victories or explain them away as not meaning very much. In fact, I saw more coverage about Marco Rubio winning the Puerto Rican primary a place that's not even a state, then I saw coverage of Bernie Sanders' victory in Maine. And the amount of contempt the mainstream media has for Bernie Sanders is amazing. They are going to do anything, it seems, to try and belittle him, diminish him, or what they prefer, not to talk about him at all. And this was really exemplified in the debate which happened a couple days ago. In this debate, 
Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton talked about a variety of issues and outlined their policies on said issues. And rather talking about the actual substantive policy measures that were discussed in the debate, everybody in the mainstream media focused on one thing. And this was this one moment where Hillary Clinton accused Bernie Sanders of being against the auto bailouts in 2008. And Bernie Sanders, preparing his response to this misrepresentation of his views, started talking and Hillary Clinton interrupted him. And very quickly, Bernie Sanders pointed at her and said, excuse me, I'm talking here. And then the entire media just zoomed in onto this one moment and declared that Bernie Sanders was sexist. Not only if you go and view this moment, it becomes clear that this encounter wasn't remotely sexist in even the slightest manner. Yet, when the media is confronted with the rampant sexism that comes from Donald Trump, they seem to be content in ignoring it. And if you're a Bernie Sanders supporter, I can imagine how insanely frustrating this is. And not to mention, I think this is a very poor long-term tactic for Hillary Clinton to take. Because what you're ultimately going to end up doing is alienating the Sanders supporters, who are a substantial chunk of the party. And when the time comes, I think a lot of them won't vote for Hillary Clinton. They may not vote for Donald Trump, but they just might stay home instead. Or they might go and instead use Bernie Sanders as a write-in candidate. Either way, it's not a very good political scenario for Clinton. And I honestly think that if Hillary Clinton was to face up against Donald Trump, she might actually lose. I'm not saying she will, but it's a high possibility. If she goes up against any other Republican candidate, I think she will definitely lose. We started this conversation by talking about House of Cards. And to me, Hillary Clinton is very much like Frank Underwood. Frank Underwood will do anything or say anything or backstab anyone to get into power. And I think behind closed doors, when Hillary Clinton is just with herself or her close friends and family, I think she probably talks a lot like Frank Underwood. But American politics is changing. People don't want politicians like Hillary Clinton. And these underhanded tactics of trying to paint Bernie Sanders as sexist when he clearly isn't are going to come back and backfire. Anyway, we have a number of upcoming primaries and it will be very interesting to see how they play out. Anyway, let's talk about the Irish election now. And the gentleman who asked me to talk about the Irish election emailed me after the podcast and was like, your pronunciation was awful and made me cry. So I apologize for that, but I can't guarantee I'll do much better this time. So the election itself was much closer than people were predicting. Anyway, the former Irish chief, Enda Kenny, and his Fina Gael party won the most amount of seats. However, their vote count was diminished greatly, losing about 11 points overall, finishing with 50 seats. And you need 79 seats to form a majority. So in the end, Enda Kenny only won about 25.5% of the vote. In second place came the right-wing party, Fianna Fáil. And they came in a very close second, scraping together 
24.3% of the vote, awarding him 44 seats, only six less than Enda Kenny. Coming in third is the hard left-wing party Sin Fen, who did a little bit worse than most people thought they were going to do, getting only about 14% of the vote and finishing with 23 seats. Still, though, this is an increase for the party. Lastly, the Irish Labour Party got completely hammered, losing 26 seats and only getting 6.6% of the vote. They were forced to walk away with only 7 seats. And then after that, you have a smattering of smaller parties, such as the Social Democratic Party, the Green Party, there's an anti-austerity alliance party, and then you have 19 or 20, I believe, independents sort of rounding out this Irish, I'm just going to call it parliament, sorry. So Liam, the gentleman who asked me to talk about this election, gave me a little bit of insight as to how things were playing out on the ground in Ireland. So Enda Kenny's party, the Fine Gael party, was campaigning on economic stability. They were the party seen as ushering in the recovery because the Irish economy was not doing so well before they were elected. But I guess most Irish people didn't feel like they did a good enough job to deserve a second mandate. Fianna Fáil, seen as the party who crashed the economy, did better than expected, so they might be mounting a comeback in the future. Sinn Féin is a hard left-wing party which appealed to predominantly younger voters. However, they have a lot of controversy surrounding them, as they're seen as being too close to the IRA, or the Irish Republican Army. Lastly, Labour got decimated because most people saw them as abandoning their left-wing principles to form a coalition with Enda Kenny, a more right-wing party. You can compare this to what happened to the Liberal Democrats in the last UK election. Forming a coalition with the Conservatives, they got hammered for abandoning their more left-wing values. So what happens next? Well, Fianna Gael and Fianna Fáil, the two major parties who won the most seats in the election, have refused to join into coalition with one another. So these two parties refuse to work together, meaning that Enda Kenny has to somehow take his 50 seats and turn it into a coalition of 79. And he's going to get the first chance to try and do this because he won the most seats. If he can't do it, well, then Fianna Fáil is going to try and make the second attempt to create a workable coalition. And then there's Sinn Féin, who has also ruled out a coalition. So I was doing some math here before I started recording this to see who the person best poised to create a workable coalition. And it doesn't look good for anybody, to be quite honest. If Enda Kenny was able to get the Labour Party back on his side, along with all the independents out there, he still couldn't get enough votes to create a workable government. And the math looks just as difficult for Fianna Fáil. So at this point, we have no idea who the next chief is going to be as they're trying to negotiate some sort of coalition. What it looks like, though, is that 
no party is going to have enough power to create an outright majority. They might be able to create a minority coalition in which the independent members of parliament are going to have a expansive amount of power and may have the title of being the kingmakers in whatever this next coalition ends up looking like. So I'll definitely be keeping everybody posted as to what is going to be the overall result of this election. Um, now that the dust is settled, where are the parties going to go from here? And speaking of ongoing negotiations, I looked back at the Spanish election results that happened in 2015. We talked about them uh, in one of the first episodes of the podcast, and they still haven't figured out a workable coalition. Currently, the previous prime minister of the right-wing Spanish People's Party is acting as the caretaker prime minister as they still try and figure this whole thing out. So who knows how long it's going to take for a official government to be formed in Ireland. It could be weeks or it could be months. And that's just sometimes the way it goes when you have a parliamentary system based off proportional representation. And I think that brings me to the end of everything I wanted to say here. The last thing I'm going to leave you with is the topic for this coming week's argument episode. In this next episode, I'm going to argue that there is only one factor that gives you a measurable advantage in society, and that is wealth. As I get to put on my socialist glasses and talk about how these notions of white privilege or straight privilege or what have you only benefit one group of people the rich and powerful. And while everybody in the lower middle classes spends all their time and energy hashing out these insignificant details, the true factor that gives you privilege in society is ignored. So I hope you'll join me on Friday for our 11th episode, Wealth Privilege. Thanks everyone for listening. This has been Spencer Downing signing off for now. And until next time, you guys take care. So I can't post this now without mentioning the huge news. Bernie Sanders gets a massive upset victory in the primary state of Michigan. Down by some accords, 22% in all the polling, Bernie Sanders has defied the odds and delivered a shocking blow to Hillary Clinton. On the Republican side, Donald Trump swept Michigan as well and took three out of the four states that were voting, including Hawaii, Michigan, and Mississippi, while Ted Cruz won Ohio. So I don't want to spend too long here. I want to talk about it more on Friday. But basically, even though Hillary Clinton did win more delegates because Democratic delegates are proportionally distributed, and she won such a lopsided victory in Mississippi, the other Democratic state that was voting that Bernie Sanders wasn't able to cobble together enough delegates with his only two-point win in Michigan. But the bigger picture here is what it means going forward. Essentially, what this victory means is that no state can be considered safe for Hillary Clinton. And polling in this race is probably not as reliable as you might have expected beforehand. It shows that something is going on here. 
as Bernie Sanders has been slowly gaining momentum and racking up unexpected wins. This all feeds into what will be happening next week, as next week will be a decisive moment on both sides. Bernie Sanders is going to get to see if he received any momentum out of Michigan. As well, the Republicans are going to have what might be their last stand to stop Donald Trump and ensure a brokered convention. Because next week has two very big winner-take-all delegate states on the Republican side, and who wins these states will be able to pad their delegate count substantially. So we have Florida and Ohio. Florida, seen as ripe territory for Florida Senator Marco Rubio, has been consistently behind Donald Trump in polling records. And given his abysmal performance last night, I don't think he has much hope in pulling out a victory in his home state. Ohio, on the other hand, it's much more competitive. You have the current governor of Ohio, John Kasich, running against Donald Trump. Right now, Donald Trump has a slight lead, but things could change. And the question a lot of people are asking here is, will Marco Rubio drop out before these big two primaries? The logic being that if Marco Rubio drops out, then his support will go to John Kasich and ensure at least a victory for the anti-Trump camp in Ohio. The problem with doing that, however, is that if the anti-Trump camp cedes Florida to Trump, then a victory in Ohio might not mean all that much, especially considering that John Kasich has the least amount of delegates of any of the remaining Republican candidates, while Donald Trump winning in Florida will extend his lead substantially. So, giving the guy who has the least amount of delegates a few more, while ceding a huge state to the candidate who has the most delegates, doesn't seem like a winning strategy to me. Looking at the map here, I think Donald Trump can lose Ohio and still comfortably win the nomination. It will be a blow for sure to Donald Trump, but it won't be a fatal one. So with all this in mind, March 15th is shaping up to be a pretty critical moment in this primary, both on the Democratic side and the Republican side. On the Democratic side, we get to see if Bernie gained any momentum coming out of Michigan. And if he does, that spells serious trouble for Hillary Clinton. On the Republican side, like I said before, this might be the Republican establishment's last chance at stopping Donald Trump. And right now, the math doesn't look like it's in their favor. Trump only needs to win one of these big winner-take-all states to keep up his momentum. If the anti-Trump camp wants to blunt Donald Trump, they're going to have to stop him here. They're going to have to take both Ohio and Florida and hope that Ted Cruz might be able to eke out a victory somewhere else, potentially North Carolina. So of the scenarios that could happen here, that one is the worst for Trump and might be the only scenario in which he can be stopped at this point in the primary campaign. Scenario two is Donald Trump wins Florida, loses Ohio, and overall does okay 
on March 15th, but not great. Even then, considering that Donald Trump is still the leader, he will come out on top in this scenario. The final scenario being Donald Trump wins both Florida and Ohio, and if that's the case, the anti-Trump camp might have absolutely no hope in bringing down the Trump. So, it's exciting times, no question about it, and we'll have more to say on Friday. Until then, you guys, take care.